0: first time. This class is uh, the entryway into the life of Christ church. Uh, Katekeo in the Greek means instruction, um, and it appears several times in the New, in the New Testament. Um, most notably, uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that I would rather uh, speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Um, So Paul is saying basically, I I value the instruction that happens with the mind more than uh, these ecstatic uh, gifts of the Spirit. Now does that mean he doesn't value gifts of the Spirit? Not at all. It just (laughs) means that he is excited about, and the thing that he really uh, values is teaching uh, with the mind. So uh, this work of catechesis continued on in the ancient church and really flourished between the 2nd and 5th centuries. um, And it became... Uh, The means, this work of uh, a year plus, maybe even as much as three years of instruction prior to entering the church through baptism, uh, became uh, really uh, the bulwark of the ancient church's uh, mission um, to essentially pagans. It was this idea that that the Christian um, understanding of the world and of God is so drastically different Uh, from the contemporary understanding that we've got to spend considerable amounts of time teaching, right? Um, And there are several examples of this, but uh, it it is very true today that we're in a very similar time. Would you not agree that Christian believing is very different from the contemporary uh, mode of thinking, of uh, praying, of uh, thinking about God and the rest? Uh, So uh, that's one of the reasons that we offer that here. All right. Well, in that vein, we use a catechism for all the instructions. So if you want to get a copy, I think we have a couple left. We blew through these way faster than I had hoped we would. I don't know how that would go. Anyway, I hope we blew through these way, ha- way faster than uh, I thought we would. So we had 50 at the beginning of the semester, and they're pretty much all gone now. So um, I think there are two left, and uh, if you bribe me, I can get you another one. Um, so we've been talking about Jesus Christ. Um, who is Jesus. In strict theological terms, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Yes. Okay. Just by second, to, by second, do we mean less than the Father or less than the Holy Spirit? No, we just mean second. Uh, second is not meaning by gradation; it simply means second, and not first, uh, and not third either. Uh, so there it is. Um, We speak of Jesus Christ as God's only Son. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Meaning that he is neither created, right? Nor is he greater than or less than um, in dignity or in essence than the Father. Okay. Um, Now, of course, how do you square that? Because Jesus seems to indicate that the Father is greater at certain points. How do, you, how do you square that up? I probably shouldn't open up the theological can of worms to begin the morning. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, what, what we mean is that, the, that the, the eternal person of the Son responds consistently in obedience to the Father. Um, meaning that the, the Son, is, uh, is as an act of his free will, um, is, is eternally uh, obedient to the Father. Um, but not, and I think this is important, not subject, not less than. Um, that's very important that we keep that language clear. All right, so we have also stated that, uh, that in, the, in the person of the sun, how many natures does the divine Son have? Three? Two? One? <laughs> okay, it's two. Which, what are they? The human nature and the divine nature. Okay? And they are together in one personal union. Okay? So we speak of this personal union as, uh, in fact, has a great, great old Greek name, the hypostatic union, meaning personal. Okay? Um, and that essentially means that, and I'll put this clearly, that means that it is, it is uh, not only fraught with difficulty to speak of one nature in abstraction from the other, but you, ought not just, you just ought not do it. Right? There's no reason to do it. Why? Because everything that Jesus does in his divine nature, he also does in his human nature. And everything that he does in his human nature, he also does in his divine nature. Why? Because he acts as one person. Yes? Just like you and I act as one person. Uh, if we try to act as another person, what do we call that? We call it schizophrenia, right? It's, it's very simple. It's that uh, to, to, to be a, 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 uh, an integral person, right? which is what we say of Jesus, uh, is, is very important. So, for instance, when Jesus dies on the cross, do we say that just as human nature died? No, we say he, his, the whole person died, um, and we say, in a very simple way of saying it, we say God died on the cross, right? Because that's the gospel, okay? Um, to say that anything else happened is to miss the point, and many did in the ancient church. Um, there's also simply the truth that uh, is Mary the mother of only his human nature, or of his whole, or the whole person. The whole person. So we call Mary the mother of God, not meaning that she's the originator of the Godhead, because that would be impossible, because God is eternal, but because she's the mother of the divine person. Yes, okay, um, and who is who has both a human and divine nature. So all of this is very important because, um, for several reasons, one is that we need to be very careful not to denigrate the divine nature, right, as some in the ancient church did, to the point where Jesus was basically just a human being that God adopted. How's that work? Eh, it's fraught with difficulty. Why? Because if he's just a human being, then what can he do about us? Nothing, right? <laughs> now, he might be really good, and he might be, you know, who knows what. But, but nothing. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, he could just be God, who tends to like look like a human being. How's that? But isn't really. Or, or even to go so far as to say, well, he he certainly has a human body, and yeah, he might have a human heart, right? But, but a human will? Mm, no, he only has a divine will. <clears throat> Why? <laughs> Holy human, right? And holy divine uh, in one person. Um, if he's not holy divine, or he's not fully human, what's the problem? Remember, remember how we talked about the problem of sin in recent weeks? The, the problem is that, that uh, human nature is so broken that it has to be redeemed. By God himself joining to himself a perfect human nature. Yep. Um, and that's what we see in the Incarnation. So the Church Fathers have a, have a, there's a bit of a way of speaking about the teaching of the Fathers on this. It's, it's that, which was not, that's what, that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Okay? So if he did not, and this is refers to the human nature, if he did not receive and did not assume a full human nature, then he cannot redeem human nature. Right? Um, so anyway, there's an introduction. I hope you're not, you know, I hope that's okay. All right. We have talked about Jesus' suffering. We've also talked about his death. Um, now, this is important. Um, did Jesus actually die a human death, or did he only appear to die a human death? He actually died. So heart stopped beating, brainwaves stop, the whole thing stops. And in fact, the creed tells us, and scripture is clear about this as well, that he died to such an extent that he actually descends among the dead. Um, just like we will, right? In every way that we will, when we die. Okay. Um, now, it's not so much a question of location, right? <laughs> because where's the dead? Well, it's not. You know, you don't sort of dig down, right? You, you got to think less about lo, lo, less about location and more about the the, the reality of this, um, which is that he died in every way. Um. How do we, I mean, how does scripture speak about the death of Christ being actual and real? He gave up his spirit. So, so he breathes his last, right? Um, there's, this, there's this clarity in the Gospels that he breathed out and died. Okay. And and he's so dead that when, uh, because it's, he dies, remember he dies on the night before, before the Sabbath. And those who, apparently those who are going to be taking him down from the cross are Jews. And they can't do this once Sabbath starts because they can't work. So they have to hasten the death of those who are being crucified that day. So they go around with clubs and they break the legs of those who are on the crosses. When they get to Jesus, this is, John tells us this, they don't need to do it because he's already dead. Okay. Um, other things. Well, a, a soldier takes a spear and pokes him in the side, and blood and water flow out of his side. Does that happen to people who are alive? Listen, it doesn't even happen to people who are swooning, right? It doesn't happen, I just passed out. No, it doesn't. that doesn't happen. So scripture speaks very clearly about this fact of his death. Now, there's this continual heresy which pops up, which is called docetism, that says, no, 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 he only appeared to die. Okay? You all got it wrong. And actually, this actually uh, takes its most, um, most clear and unabashed form in the Quran, actually. Um, the Quran actually espouses a docetic understanding of the crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified but only appeared to die. Okay? And he didn't actually die. Well, I mean, the, the response is this. Nobody in Rome uh, claimed at all that he didn't die. Uh, what they claimed was, and the claim that was spun was, that the disciples stole his body out of the tomb. That was all they could come up with. But they didn't They didn't at all say, no, he didn't die. He just sort of like got up off the cross and walked away. That would have been horribly embarrassing, by the way. Um, listen, crucifixion is, in the ancient, in the ancient world, the means of total uh, embarrassment of the nations. Put it that way. Um, it is a means of Roman sub- subjugation of the whole known world. Remember, if you're a Roman citizen, can you be crucified? No, it's, it's, it's illegal to do that. Um, uh, totally illegal. I'm, I'm certain that if, if they could have gotten away with crucifying Paul, they would have, but the tradition tells us he was beheaded. Why? Because he's a Roman citizen. So all of this is very important that we see this, that that nobody denies that he died on the cross. Uh, But that does bring us to the next glaring question, which is the resurrection. So we're on page 47, uh, number 64. What does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated, God restored him physically from death to life in his perfected and glorious body, never to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Okay. You ready for this? This is going to be a lot. Okay. Jesus was not merely resuscitated. What does that mean? It, nobody gave him CPR, right? Because mm-hmm. um, here's what happens when you get when you when you die on the table and they give you CPR and you have the paddles and you know all that. Uh, what will someday later happen to you? You'll die again, right? Or maybe you'll die for the first time. I, I don't want to get into it. Uh, but 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 the reality is you're still going to die. Um, if you happen to like pass out to the point where you don't have a pulse and then you wake up, are you still going to die? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And your body is still limited in exactly the same ways that it used to be, yes? Um, but this is not what happens. What we read here is that God restored him physically from death to life in his perfected and glorious body. Now, I don't want to break those two down. Perfected, what does perfected mean here? Without flaw, yeah. I would take it to mean that it, it means that his body is everything that God intends a human body to be, ultimately. Okay, so let's get that one first, right? That his body is absolutely everything. I mean, if you're if you're a philosophy student and you study teleology, right, the idea that everything in the created order has a perfection, um, his body has attained to that affection or that that perfection. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is the question. Was, it his, was his human nature the first human nature to be redeemed? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I'll go with that. Um, the, the reality of it is that, that his body, as he's incarnate, is liable to death, is it not? Of course, because he dies. Is his, risen, is his risen body liable to death? No. In fact, this is what Paul says. He says, uh, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died unto sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay? So the life in him is being lived to the glory of the Father. All right? that's, what it, that's, that's part of what it means to have a glorious body. The other part of what it means to have a glorious body is that he exercises in his physical body mastery over creation. Okay. How do we see that in the gospel accounts? Remember, this is only like a grand total of like six chapters in the New Testament. But it's important. What's, what's different? There's something strange about his body, isn't there? Yeah, you can walk through walls and doors and like there's locked doors and like right through. Does that strike anybody as odd? And yet we say that it is a physical body. Yeah? Okay. Well, more about that later. What else? He can vanish, right? He's on the road to Emmaus, he breaks bread with the disciple, these two disciples, and they like they're like, "Whoa, it's Jesus." Then he's out of they don't see him anymore. He vanishes out of their sight. Okay? What else? He can make himself look different. There's there's this kind of this impression, although it's not explicit, that he can sort of like look like the gardener for a little bit. Almost a fool Mary Magdalene. She thinks he's the gardener. But then she, then he reveals himself to her and she sees him as he is. What else? Yeah, I mean, in his, in his physical body, so at the very end of these resurrection appearances, he, he, he vanishes out of their sight. Now, can a physical body that's not glorious do that? No, because we are trapped in physicality, yeah? But this, this body, this physical and yet, more importantly, spiritual body... Can 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 disappear. Um, now I need to be clear about this. This is very 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 important. You and I use the word spiritual to mean non-corporeal, meaning not bodily, not physical at all, entirely floating around in the ether, and we don't want to, you know, we can't see it and all that, right? The New Testament, on the other hand, and actually most people, for all of human history up till very recently it means spiritual means something else. It actually means hyper real. It means glorious. It means uh, it means that uh, the, that the dividing wall between physicality and spiritual is gone. Um, Paul speaks about this in First Corinthians, toward the end of First Corinthians, chapter fifteen, uh, basically saying that um, first you have the natural, then you the natural body, then you have the spiritual body, and what is sown in immortality is raised a spiritual body. Okay. Um, now, does that mean that the body is no longer physical? No, it just means that it's it's now spiritual. It means that it it uh, has the properties of a spirit. Meaning that, what can spirits do? Pure spirits, right? Can they take on a visible form? Yeah. Jesus takes on visible form, yeah. And yet he has a real body, right? Because, listen, what happens is the disciples, it's not like they poke him and their hand goes right through like they're a ghost, but they actually touch him. What else? He can eat, right? I mean, this is kind of amazing. It, it's not like Ghostbusters where the ghosts eat and it just kind of falls on the ground. You know what I'm talking about? Come on. Okay, good. Jeez, I was like, man, I'm going to have to, like, show Ghostbusters one Sunday morning. <laughs> um, it doesn't just fall to the ground. He, he eats and he actually consumes and actually digests things, apparently. Um, so all of this is to say that this glorious body is... is, is um, is it, now, of course, this is true. Did he did he exchange his natural body for a new body? No, but we can say that his body was renewed. That it was that it was, and I think this is very right. Redeemed. Um, and I think this is the last point. That body will never die again. Uh, death is death is done for him. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. In fact, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that that he appeared to 500 at one time. Now, that's very key, and I want to say a couple things about Paul's testimony to the resurrection. He says 500 at one time, probably because there were 500 at one time that saw this. But this is really important. One of the claims leveled against Christianity is, "Oh, well, it's probably just this kind of like ecstatic vision that all these people had at the same time." Has that ever happened to you? I mean, listen, I'm just going to tell you that if 500 people see a baseball game, they're not going to give the same account. Did you see Auburn and LSU last night? Okay. There's a prime example. I think probably of the thousands of people, they probably saw 18 different football games last night. Did they see the same game? Yeah, but they have 1,800 different impressions, even about who won. By the way, you should check it out. Incredible ending. Uh, But there's the point, right? They all agree that this is what they saw. They're witnesses to the resurrection. Um, And Paul Paul goes as far as to say, this is very important. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, That which um, I received, I handed on to you. So this teaching on the resurrection, he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, but he also receives the testimony of the disciples about the resurrection, and he passes it on when he when he has occasion. Um, so that's absolutely important that we see that as well. Yep. Yeah, so his body is left in the tomb. Okay, that's really important. His body is left in the tomb. Uh, but that, and I would say this, is, say this with fear and trembling, that non-bodily portion of him descends among the dead. Um, and, for instance, uh, Peter speaks about this and, and essentially makes an oblique reference to the gospel being preached among the dead. Um, in fact, this is kind of an interesting thing, because today's gospel reading has this discussion of Sheol, um, which is very strange to us, but it's this the Jewish understanding of the place of the dead, which is different from how we understand being dead, most people today, um, in several respects. And I can just give you a bit of a glaze over it. Um, the Jewish understanding of the dead is that when you die, what happens to your body? You're buried, right? So where are you? You're in the earth, right? And also, keep in mind, most Jewish people at the time, and in fact, pretty much all of them, it was universal agreement, the earth is flat, held up on four corners by four pillars, okay, surrounded by this glass, by whatever it is, dome of water, yeah? And the underside of that table like earth is Sheol. It's a place of, I don't know, if you can imagine people just going, uh, well, I mean, all the ancients speak of this kind of place of the dead, right? It's either Hades, or it's Sheol, or it's something like that. And do people rise from those places? Well, Jews believe in the resurrection of the dead, but it's a little different. It's quite a bit different. It's certainly not a glorious body that they speak of. It's more like being raised to participate in God's eternal bureaucracy, Okay? That's basically what it is, and only if you're really super good, okay, <laughs> then then you're just dead forever, okay. Um, but that's not what the gospels speak about. When they speak about Jesus' resurrection, body, resurrected body, they don't speak about um, a. It, it's a body like we have, but it's also a glorious body. Um, so to, to get back to your to get back to your question, Jesus dies, and and everything that happens to those who die happens to him. Um, meaning that uh, wherever the dead are, if you want to think about that in terms of space, if you want to think about that in terms of um, dimension even can be helpful, <laughs> whatever makes sense, he goes there to where they are. The Jewish understanding is also that uh, the righteous dead, people like Moses and Abraham and others, uh, live in Sheol, but they have, a, they have a nicer place than the others, right? Their place is not filled with torment. We're going to see this in today's gospel reading, remember? Lazarus goes, he dies. And the rich man who wouldn't feed him also dies. And where's Lazarus? We read that he's in the bosom of Abraham, okay? And he's sitting there all happy, right? Whereas before his life had been horrible and wretched. And Lazarus is tormented in flames, so he's in the not-so-nice part of Sheol, okay? And what does, what does Lazarus say? Or what does the rich man say? I'm sorry. Lazarus is in the flames. What does the rich man say? Send someone to bring me water, please. And, and basically says, get it yourself, you know? <laughs> um, because there's this understanding that it's, it's not great among the dead. It's, it's, not, it's not nice, Okay. Now, there may be portions of the dead which, which would often be called paradise. Paradise. We were actually having a wonderful email conversation about this. Uh, paradise is a Persian concept um, which relates to these uh, fenced-in pleasure gardens that the Persian princes would set up so that you could just eat and enjoy life in these pleasure gardens. Um, and it's, it's kind of not, it's not heaven, but it's kind of like this, oh, well, you get to wait in the, in the first-class lounge, right? <laughs> um, that's really the, probably the best way to describe it. You're still dead, right? And you're awaiting you're awaiting resurrection. But the understanding is certainly that the that the gospel is preached among the dead. Uh, that's that's certainly stated in scripture very clearly. Um, and and let me just before I get to your question, let me just lay out why this is so awfully dis- this is horrid for uh, modern Christians to take in because we say, yeah, but I thought you go to heaven when you die. And and I think the answer needs to be slow down, right? Slow down. Um, because we believe, and we say this in the creeds, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. So, <clears throat> as much as I want to believe that, you know, my grandmother is in heaven with Jesus and all that, no, my grandmother, was her body was cremated and is being held and waited, and she's waiting for the resurrection, right? Someday I will die, I'll be put in the box, I'll be buried in the ground, and I my body will wait, for resurrection. Okay? Um, now, the sad thing is that in so many places in the church today, what's taught is this kind of like, yeah, well, then you float up to the non-corporeal heaven, which is so nice. And But that totally... See, this is why people don't understand the resurrection of Jesus. Because they say, well, why do we have this non-corporeal heaven, but Jesus is risen in the body? What? Well, so What? See, but the hope, of the, the hope of ancient Christians was that Jesus defeated death and was raised in his body. And the hope that every Christian proclaims is this, my body will someday rise, okay, on the last day. Go ahead, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, the idea is that the idea is that in this, in this, uh, I mean, here's here's the big question: Where is God? Everywhere, yes. Um, I think I think one of the great things about and you read C.S. Lewis and The Great Divorce is this idea that for for those who are redeemed, wherever they are is basically heaven. Yeah, for those who are not redeemed, to be in the presence of God is hell to them. So I think we've got to get this kind of clear in our minds. First of all, that's, that's a really important thing. But I would also say this. I would say scripture seems to indicate that among the dead, there are the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. Um, and the righteous dead enjoy God's presence. So Paul looks forward to this, uh, to this death, uh, to be freed from his body. He says, you know, in, great places in 1st Corinthians. Who will, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is in uh, Romans chapter seven. Um, and it's, it's to understand that I think, how can I put this? We, we have this odd deal as modern people. And the odd deal is we're, we tend to be materialists. We tend to believe that the only things which are really important are physical things. And yet we tend to say, but they're all bad. So escaping them is really important. So we tend to take on all this kind of Eastern religion sort of stuff, where it's like, well, I just want to escape my body, and I don't want to be—I don't want to be in my body anymore. But see, Christianity has this way of speaking about, yeah, the body is overtaken by sin, but in the resurrection, God's going to fix that. Yeah. Um, so you have that to look forward to. I mean, He's going to fix it and make it glorious, just like He did Jesus' body. So go ahead, Wendy. Yep. Right. And in evil it's, a big deal, it's a really big deal. And <laughs> of the of yep. 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 The of life, and yep. Yeah, and this yep, uh, is nice because it, it a in the of died and who was there he went, liberated the Yep, Right. Church sure of Yeah, time. that's really important. So you know, it's, it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, and and so this this understanding of the harrowing of hell is really important. So ancient writers, going all the way back, first and second century, speak about this harrowing of hell. Um, one one of my favorites is this, and we read it every year in Christchurch on Holy Saturday. Is this is this homily for Holy Saturday? That's it has an unknown author, is preached in Greek originally, and basically the image that this preacher lays out is. Jesus descending among the dead, bearing his cross, this victorious weapon. Okay, that's what he says. He, he appears to them bearing his victorious weapon, the cross. He goes among them, and what is it that he says? He, he beats his breast and he says, my Lord be with you all. Okay, and then he starts taking their hands and he leads them up out of hell. Okay, uh, This is incredible, incredible imagery. And you're right, the mystery plays do this too. It's, it's, get this, all right? Death is the worst of our problems, okay? Uh, listen, we, we, like, we romanticize death. We make it all this like, oh, it's not so bad, you know? Uh, it's just like falling asleep. And No, death is awful, right? If you watch someone die, it's terrible. And the Christian understanding is that Christ has entered in, died, literally died, and has defeated death. Um, so go ahead, Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say this: um, it's 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 certainly within the realm of Christian imagination that the soul experiences the presence of God. Yes, but you have to hold that intention with we await resurrection. Because the disembodied soul in heaven is not our eternal destiny. Okay? Our eternal destiny is the unified body and soul in a glorious body raised to the presence of God. Go ahead. Yeah. When I'm my yeah. Right. right. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you have to you have to acknowledge an intermediate state. Okay, so for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, this means that you have purgatory, where souls are cleansed of sin, and they may enter into the presence of God after that cleansing. Right. But they still await resurrection. Um, So the saints even, they still say, the saints still await the resurrection of the dead. Are they in the presence of God in heaven? Yes. They still await the resurrection. Um, And I think for Anglicans, we would much rather say, we don't know. Right? Right? I mean, that's, that's one of the best classical Anglican answers I can give is, we don't know, right? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. What the Bible does tell us is this, right? So that's important to keep in mind. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. Listen, Orthodox Christianity demands that there be some kind of intermediate state. There has to be, right? What happens in that intermediate state? I just have to tell you, I kind of, I have some sympathy for the Roman Catholic understanding of purgatory, just in the sense that I want to be cleansed of sin in that time, I hope. Really cleansed. Um, so there you go. But will it be a thousand years? I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, so there's that, there's that kind of thought of saying, I like that, but I can't command you to believe it, right? Because it's not in the Bible. So there it is. Um, so this is all very, very key, uh, I think, in terms of this discussion. Um, if you want to read more about this, the best place I can send you is to N.T. Wright, um, who has done copious research, and the best book on this subject is Surprised by Hope, where he talks about this awaiting of the resurrected body. Um, so go ahead. Yep. Um. It's not their bodies that you see it's the spirits of the dead coming up out of hell or out of the out of the place of the dead um, meaning that ostensibly maybe they're not there right um, but it's a mysterious thing I think it has to be it has to be held in mystery um, so yeah we do see those things we see a lot of mysterious things right in that time um, I, I think I think the other thing that I would point out with regard to that is that what Scripture shows us in His death and resurrection is a reordering of the universe. Would you not agree with that? Okay, it's it's a reordering reordering to the extent that when death no longer reigns even over one man, the whole thing is changed. Yeah. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. So I think I think you can you can see how that how that takes place, and um, that's that's about where I want to leave it. Um, I know that I know that just kind of like I probably just dismantled your entire theological universe in one morning. Uh, so just just let it kind of sit there for a little bit. Because uh, um, again, for most American most American people, they just sort of say, I mean, I have family members who say, you know, just uh, you know, take my ashes and throw them in the trash. I don't need my body anymore. And and to which I just want to say hold on just a second. Like, this is why Christians have always treated the body with utmost respect um, and, and as a holy thing. Um, so that's important. Um, and I, I do want to say that, actually. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I think uh, we need to be reminded of is, is this treatment of the body and death is, is a really important uh, thing. Um, and also, to think about death... Um, Part of the problem is that um, okay. My grandmother died a few months ago, and she died as I was holding her hand and praying the prayers for the dying. Okay, I was alone with her in the room when it happened. It was one of the most incredibly holy and amazing things that has ever happened to me, and I'll never forget it. Okay, I, I, I. She was ready to go. And my my seven, you know, my my mom and her five brothers and sister left the room, and it was just me. And I was having to go to the airport in an hour. And so I took her hand and I said, "Grandma, you ready to let go?" And I started praying for her, and she just she just took her last breath as I was saying, "Depart, O Christian soul, out of this world, in the name of the Father." And and it's just this incredible thing. And and what I was reminded of as that happened was that when I called my uncles in, my five uncles. And my, and my aunt, my mom's a nurse, so she's seen this a lot. They had never seen a dead body before. In their mid-50s, had never seen a dead body. Why? Listen, we don't do well with reminders that we're mortal. We don't like it. We don't want to see it. Put that thing in a bag and take it to the morgue. Okay. So to watch a, a human body treated with respect as it's dying, and as that person is taking her last breaths, and to see death treated with treated in holy ways is a shock. Um, so I want to, I want you to keep that in mind. One of the ways that people are starting to kind of uh, change things is our funeral culture has got to be. Uh, changed, right? I think a lot of people are starting to recognize this. There are people at Christchurch who are even investigating uh, family burials where your family prepares your body for burial. And they're taking these these incredible, there's a, there's, I don't want to go too far into it, but there is, there's an undertaker in Austin who's one of these kind of hipster types and she's offering uh, classes in preparing bodies for burial so that your family can do it for you so that you can learn this, Um, and and I I want to recommend it very, very highly. Um, Because the reason is that we don't... God is offering us a window into our frailty and death. Um, And so we need to take every opportunity to be with the dying, and to participate as much as we possibly can in their burial, in, their, uh, in, in what happens after they die, um, because we need to get to know this. Okay, And the reason I say that, if you know death, well, the resurrection will be all that much more glorious to you. Okay? All right, so on to this. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes. There is no... Uh, there is no in any church today. There's not any kind of. Oh, well, I shouldn't say any, but uh, Christians have been cremating in a way that is that is perfectly acceptable to anybody that anybody that would ask. Um, totally fine. Now, I'll say that to you. For me, I've made the determination for myself. I want to be put in a pine box and buried. Um, no embalming nothing more than that. Um, And a lot of that just kind of has personal reasons, but a lot of it is just that, no, I want my family to hear my body rolling around in that pine box. Ideally, I want them to put me there. Right? Because, Because I want them to get just how, first of all, how bad death is. You need to say, this is bad. And the only one who can redeem us of it is God. Okay? But I also want, I also... Think that the body needs to be handled in a holy way. Um, so there's that, um, and and I think kind of the ways that we tend to deal with the human body after death are just very sanitary and detached. Um, and we're much more willing to just pay somebody to do that for us. Um, and 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 people from all of human history have have had their own ways of dealing with this, and they're not sanitary in that way. Um, so, so there's that, that need. I, I think a lot of people choose cremation uh, first of all because it's way less expensive. It's way less of a burden on your family, um, and so it's it's an option for that reason. I think if you can all pull if you can pull it off at all, do the full burial. Um, but I think you know the reality is that uh, it's it's an expensive option. Um, it just is um, to to do. The, just to give you an idea of this. To do a cremation usually costs about a thousand dollars these days. To do a full burial with a vault casket, et cetera, can be as much as thirty to forty thousand dollars. So you see, kind of the reason why it happens. Um, but it's also a reason we need we need to have. I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but we need to have reform of these things. I think uh, you know I, I think there's a lot of movement right now to have. Uh, um, a much much better ways of doing these things, and a lot of a lot of people are thinking about this, and it's a really good thing, um, but but it's not something people like to dwell on very much. Um, but I do think it's important. I think it's really important. Well, Christians for most of for most of Christian history opposed cremation. They saw it as a des- as a desecration of the body. Um, so, yeah, the the pagans did it. That's something pagans do. Yeah. They put you on the funeral pier and they and they burn you, right? Uh, Christians didn't do that. Um, they, in fact, they radically opposed it. And it's only been in the last 60 years that Roman Catholics have allowed for cremation at all. So you have that too. Um, anyway, I don't want to get off on a tangent. I'm, I'm, I'm off on a tangent now. Okay, one last question. I think we can do one last. What kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? This is question 65. Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars, and ate with them. Okay, So this is all the stuff that we talked about before. He invites them to touch him. He invites them to see his scars. Uh, he eats with them. Um yeah, we'll leave the Ascension for next week. So uh, we'll, we're going to talk about the Ascension and uh, the, the session is seated at the right hand of the Father uh, next week. And we'll also talk about judgment, hopefully, next week, if we can get to it. Um, I realize we only covered two questions today, but uh, that's part of the fun of it, right? Uh, so are there, any, are there any other questions before we keep going? Before we close? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I want to recommend to you uh, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, is really very, very, very good. Um, and I, I want to repeat that I think this, this question of embodiment really does come to the fore in big ways um, in that for most American Christians the narrative is I'll die and my body will be sloughed off and will just disappear or will be absorbed into the ground eaten by worms and all of that never to be seen again and I want to float up to heaven I'll fly away old glory you know uh, and, you know, to a land where joys will never end, uh, I'll fly away well, it, j- it just needs to be said <laughs> though that fulfills a lot of dreams of a lot of people, it's not Christianity it just isn't Christians believe that the body lies in death and awaits judgment, period um, and so uh, it's, you got to have that element that's what we speak of in the creed, we speak of the resurrection of the body So go ahead Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, uh, though we should treat the body with respect and dignity, it's not to say that God can't do amazing things with the body, right? It's not to say that God can't piece everything together. He absolutely can't. Um, but there is also the reason that you know, after those sorts of accidents, people spend untold dollars, a lot of time and energy seeking out remains. Um, it's it's why do we do that if the body's nothing? I think it's because we know that that's just not right, <laughs> you know. And so we just say, well, we gotta find the body. We gotta find the remains. This is really important. Although you know, kind of with our words, we'll deny it, right? Uh, but it is important. It's, it's incredibly important. Yeah, it's an it's incredibly important principle. Yeah, the military put such value on this that um, there are you know, procedures, etc., to, to find remains. I mean, the U.S. military is still seeking out the remains of, uh, of the dead in Vietnam as we speak. There are offices set up to do this. Um, and the reason is, listen, we know the human body is sacred. And that we should do everything we can to recover it, but that's also not to say that um, that God can't do anything about it when there are things like that. Um, but again, still, even for those that are that are totally consumed in burning, burning fiery hellscapes, yes, even they will be re- <laughs> raised from the dead, and and this is the power of the resurrection, right? Um, it is to say that uh, that that, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to want to make that really clear. Okay, anybody else? Okay, great. See you next week.